0: Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I'm excited to be speaking with Spain today. So we're going to Europe where we're, we're catching a, a train down to the Southeast. And uh, my next guest is a digital change maker, creating social learning systems to empower Black people women, people with disabilities, and other marginalized populations in the technology and education sectors. Serving as a mobile technologist, trainer, and researcher, she has 16-plus years of professional experience spanning five continents, and the public- private, and civil society sectors. A Black and Native American cis woman excelling with ADHD, she also has extensive experience delivering action-oriented training, integrating themes of racial equality, justice, and gender with global perspectives. Dr. Rhonda Zalesny green welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Florence. It's it's good to be here and to be in the space curated by yourself. So Very honored to to have received an invitation to participate.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right in. Rhonda, tell us where you're from, where you are local, and what is your craft?
1: Sure. So I am from the United States, uh, actually from from Tampa, Florida. So I'm local right now to Spain, uh, just outside of Alicante, Spain, uh, on the Costa Blanca. And my craft is. Empowerment. So working to empower people, whether that's through training, learning and development or through coaching or just being that friend who's going to tell you, you know, you go ahead, boy, you're doing it, you know, being that that cheerleader. (laughs)
0: <laughs> mhm 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 nice nice empowerment as a craft i think we need a lot more of those kinds of um personalities in the corporate sector most definitely
1: absolutely
0: so Rhonda, tell us how does a young woman from florida find her way to five continents tell us a little bit more about that journey
1: sure so growing up you know i always had this You know, passion for traveling in the sense that we, my parents took us on the only vacation that I can remember to somewhere in Southern Florida. And after that, I always was like, oh, can we go on another trip? And we just never did. And growing up, you know, I think. Black parents are very good at, like, when you're poor, you never really know it because they do everything mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. not to know mm-hmm. that. So yeah. I now understand, you know, that we... I grew up in, in poverty or, like, you know, in a working-class kind of family. And so that was not really possible for us financially as a as a family of five, my two parents and and three children. And so, you know, when I went to... University, uh, I actually went to a a women's college, which is not very common uh, nowadays, although there are, you know, several famous single sex institutions in the US. Uh, It was still not very common. And when I went there, um, kind of their brand was to help women find their voices and and to be empowered. And, and one of the ways that they did that was through experiential learning. And so one of my majors as an undergraduate was in Spanish. And the first time I ever, I ever traveled abroad was to Mexico. And so I was in uh, Cuernavaca, Mexico, uh, and that was you know, about 55 minutes south of Mexico City. um, Mm. And Cuernavaca is the city of eternal spring. And the time that I had there, I just absolutely loved it. I came to adore the Mexican people. And that experience kind of set me off on, like, you know, connecting my younger self with my adult self and confirming, yes, the wanderlust is there, it's genuine. And Mm -hmm. so after that, the rest, as they say, is history. I I went to, after that abroad trip um, at school to to work on and improve my Spanish, I went to uh, the UK and Europe for the first time to study abroad at Oxford University to, to do international business. And Mm -hmm. that made me fall in love with with Europe, which is why I'm now back here, kind of the best of both worlds in Europe, but in a Spanish-speaking country. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And so after those experiences, um, you know, like many young people didn't know what I really wanted to do after graduating and uh, became a teacher, like doing English as a second language teaching. And so... Um, how I ended up on so many continents was being a teacher traveler. So, you know, teaching English as a second language, but then uh, deciding, hey, this really is a profession for me and kind of committing to that. So mm-hmm. it went beyond just doing English as a second or as a foreign language and also went to the other things that now define my career, which are like gender, tech, um. diversity, equity, inclusion, and so forth. So, so all of that, like my career was, was my passport.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. So, you know, I'm always curious about people who travel the world, um, teaching English as a second language. And, you know, I know people that have traveled from Ghana, friends of mine have done it as well, like lived in Japan doing it. So how exactly, what are the mechanics of actually becoming a teacher as a second language in another country?
1: Well, surprisingly, um, (laughs) like many things, uh, one of the first requirements appears to be to be white. Like my, my reality in my first experience teaching abroad, it was... Really frustrating at times because at the time we went abroad, I held a license for teaching English as a second language, and mm-hmm. um, I knew other people who did not, and maybe they had been teachers or just mm-hmm. had a bachelor's degree. But by mm-hmm. and large, as a black person applying to to teach in South Korea, many doors, digital doors, slammed on my face, or just not even responded to because I was black, and there was this idea that to teach English abroad, you know, in South Korea in particular, the idea was that language is in your blood. So when people saw me, they could not believe that I was American, (laughs) you know, they did not believe that I was American. They thought I was African and that there was no way that I could teach English. So when and where I did get job offers in South Korea, sometimes they were substandard terms and conditions from from my colleagues and things like that. So for me, that was really eye-opening because at that stage, South Korea, you know, had their super fast internet and, and all of those things at their disposal, but you still heard comments like this not just from the students but these are the teachers the people who are hiring so so that mm-hmm. was my first experience and I think the universe said okay we need to heal you from that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and my next experience was in Equatorial Guinea okay. which for me was you know it was my first time in Africa at that mm-hmm. stage um it was in a Spanish speaking country that I'm ashamed to say that as a Spanish language graduate, I had never heard of this country. We were never taught about it. Mm -hmm. And that for me got me really thinking like, wow, what kind of curriculum are we being fed in schools where we don't learn that there's a Spanish speaking country in Africa and learn that the history of that. So being there was incredible because you know, I was looked up to. People were so grateful to have me. I actually worked at yeah. um an oil company teaching employees um, who were eventually meant to take over operations from the American company that I was working with. And so that experience, just feeling, the love and the gratitude for what I was doing, you know, I still keep in touch with several of my students from there. And that, that was in, I was there 2007 and 2008. So well over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that experience was incredible. But then after that, I went to Madagascar as part of the, the Peace Corps as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer And that experience, again, became jarring because depending on where I was in the country, if I was in the very central part of Madagascar, uh, I was called slave. (laughs) I was not thought to be American because of my my skin color. But then on the coast, where there were predominantly people who looked like me, like African people, um, it was completely different. And there, uh, because I'm a plus-size woman you know, though my weight became the center of attention, not my race or my appearance, like my appearance in terms of race, it was, you know, my size. And so, you know, as I I mull that over, I'm like, gosh, mainland Africa remains the place that I had the best experience because I was able to really and truly be me, not only as a teacher, but as a person. And, you know, the exchange of respect the you know the respect i have for my students not just what they had for me um being invited into their homes whereas they would have never invited any of my colleagues all of whom were were white so you know i've had really very eclectic <laughs> kind of experiences in this space all of which you know have have helped me to learn and and to to see You know, I think diversity, equity and inclusion is is, you know, very much a U.S. construct. So I always try to speak in in the language of intersectionality, which was also a U.S. construct, but one that allows for more global perspectives to emerge. And so all of these experiences after, you know, teaching first in the U.S. and then South Korea, Equatorial Guinea, Madagascar. Later on, I've had teaching experiences in Germany, in the UK, in Colombia, you know, several other countries in Africa, several other countries in Asia, and all have their their own, you know, things that I remember. But I think those first four experiences I share because they were so so huge for a young person in their career to kind of experience those things.
0: So so wow that's fascinating because it's very interesting because the friends that I have that taught were all of color and they went to Asia for the most part and then the friend a friend from Ghana who went to the Soviet Union had a really rough time so I definitely can understand the the idea that yeah the prerequisite is if you're teaching English you are a white person. So huh very yeah.
1: interesting.
0: So so then you were teaching and you have to figure out what's next for me, I'm thinking. And so this is a kind of combination of why the where, like, how did you come to be living and working and playing where you live with a little bit of a a meander through maybe some of the other experiences that you had before landing in Spain?
1: Sure. So, you know, I started uh, teaching in in 2005 and started in the U.S., which is a incredible experience. And I had an incredible mentor teacher to support me in that first year in the United States. And then I went to South Korea, Equatorial Guinea, Madagascar. And while in Madagascar, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm kind of in it now. So let me take this further. Let me build on it and let me get serious because you know I hadn't studied it formally, like teaching or pedagogy or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. the next step, for me, was to study and actually get to to know my craft, you know, from a theoretical standpoint. So okay. I was going to do a distance-based master's uh, at that time at the University of Massachusetts in, in Boston. Um, and I applied, I got in, and then there was a coup in Madagascar, which at the time being in it, it was really scary. But now, you know, I can look back on it and say, wow, what what a time. But, you know, Mm -hmm. when the coup happened, the USP score decided to end the program at that stage. And so I returned to the United States. And because I was going to do that program distance-based, I said, okay, well, what if I do it in person? And so I moved to Boston in 2009, uh, after getting jobs because at that stage the financial crash had happened and yeah. they were like there was right. nothing right there was nothing so mm-hmm. I was like I will take what I can get there. Mm-hmm. So I went um, and and got a job at a, a college in the Boston area, and so I did the program face to face, and that actually turned out to be a transformative gift because. All I knew was at that time, distance-based masters weren't really a thing. Right. Um, And also people looked down on it. And so, you know, when I went there in person, I did not know that these people that I was studying with were people who had worked and talked with bell hooks. I did not know that these Mm. people who had worked and talked Mm -hmm. with Paulo Freire. And when I say that, I don't mean just like, oh, they met, bumped into each other at the conference. Like they co-authored... And so they were like proteges of these giants of education and, you know, doing that two year course and really learning radical education approaches, critical literacy, really understanding what it means to be a teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of spoke to me in my soul because it helped me to see like all the things, the questioning that I would do in school and the way that I saw things as a teacher myself, I understood why that was and, and kind of how my orientation was. And so that course and program changed my life on, on that front. Another mm-hmm. front on which my life was changed was during that course I took, uh, during that, that program, I took a course called Technology and Education And that was where I hit on, okay, I am super passionate about this. So during the technology and education course, we were given an assignment to read about mobile learning. And at that stage, given my past teacher traveler experiences, you know, and like tech and education was mostly for computers. And I had never thought about using the mobile phone. And so when I read this article, I was like, oh, my God, that's it. And I just became so excited and was like yeah this is the thing to do you know this is great and i became obsessed and i knew then that that was what i would want to do a phd in like something related to technology and education but Mm -hmm. then because i had this experience living and working abroad and and doing a lot of work in international development I was like, that's another area where I'm doing the work, but I don't actually have the, the theory and to know why I'm, you know, I feel and I position myself the way that I do. So I then after doing completing that master's, I did a second master's in practicing sustainable development, uh, returned to the UK to do that. Um, and then, you know, similarly got a lot of <laughs> radicalizing in the sense of, you know, being very leftist and pro-poor, pro-marginalized people, so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, for me, all of these experiences kind of came by, came through serendipity. Like, you know, I met at that program at University of Massachusetts in Boston, I met my two professional mentors who are like, you know, in, absolutely incredible. And they have kind of informed my approach to empowerment and what it means to support somebody because what Mm -hmm. they have done for me has changed my life in terms of the opportunities given contacts, Mm -hmm. made encouragement, just everything has been super, super lovely. And so with all of that, getting into the tech sector then kind of brought me into another world of traveling because For the job that I held for the majority of my tech career, working for the Global Trade Association for the mobile industry, I traveled extensively. I remember 2016 was a banner year. And that year I was in Nigeria, Senegal, uh, Spain, um, South Africa, Myanmar, Samoa, and I'm probably leaving off one other country. And it was like, nothing to just be going there. Like that, that was what I did because at that stage, I was teaching government policymakers and regulators about telecoms policy, which I had developed expertise in in parallel because that was one of the jobs that I had when living in Boston. And then I just stayed in the tech sector after that. And so being able to now combine my passion for tech, my passion for training, learning, empowerment into one, was like a dream come true, and so after I left the GSMA, I, I got a role with an organization where you could work remotely. So even before the pandemic, my my current organization we were working remotely, and so that enabled me to you know make the transition here to Spain. Although I still maintain a residence in 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 the UK as well, because I go back very often. Uh, mm-hmm. including for getting my hair done there. okay <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a real global experience <laughs> yes so that's really interesting you you were working with governments and working on telecoms policy and this is i want to say that 2015 2016 2017 were really high tech transition phases, right? Like this is the beginning of Bitcoin, I think. So tell us more about the landscape of the tech side of needing to navigate and speak with governments and and really raise people's awareness about the policies that are affecting their people.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you hit on it perfectly. Um, At that time, like let's say between 2000 and 2010, from a technological standpoint, we saw the entire world getting increased access to the internet, um, not necessarily through fixed line co- connectivity, through mobile connectivity. So right. we saw exponential growth during that first decade, but then what we saw in, in that next decade, the one that just concluded was that in parallel to a lot of people coming online, it's almost like we are, infants using an extremely adult mm-hmm. you know, instrument, right? Yeah. So you see bad behavior, you see um, things happening that you don't want to happen. I mean, we didn't know it at the time, but in 2014, of course, with, with Facebook and all the disinformation that was beginning at that stage, online scams, you know, cyberbullying. bullying. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, one of the things when i was living and working in boston for for um i did youth leadership workshops that was part of our our college outreach to try to you know build a link from high school to college and we would do youth leadership workshops and increasingly at that time i mean there were i want to say in those two years there was a girl that a high school girl that killed herself each year due to cyberbullying So we saw all of these kind of bad behaviors emerge. And Mm -hmm. so the work that I began to do with policymakers and regulators was very much around, all right, we know this bad stuff is happening, but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that you want to try to address the problem. But instead of addressing the problem, you're actually impinging on freedom of expression, or you're actually, you know, you think you're protecting children, but actually you're causing them harm in, in these different ways. And so it became almost like a diplomat role in the sense that obviously I was working for the, the mobile telecommunications industry and they have a very specific agenda. Right. Mm -hmm. But even with that very specific agenda, There were a lot of things that you can make connections to governments like benefits, things that would also be beneficial to them and their people that you could not immediately see. Because the thing that you are responding to is the sensational activity or behavior that you're seeing happen online. And when you're doing that, a lot of my diplomacy and outreach became around how do I calm things? How do I cool the temperature? How do I use data to help them inform their decision making? So, you know, I can't get into details about every single engagement that I had, but it was always Mm -hmm. with that in mind, trying to get governments to understand the consequences of regulatory or policymaking actions. But from the perspective of this is what's going to help serve your citizens in the long run. And one of my most favorite engagements that I had in this experience was working with the government of Nigeria because prior to that engagement, my colleagues who were traditional like lobbyists We're going in trying to get the government to do, I can't even remember what it was. They wanted them to take some sort of action that the government was not willing to do. So Mm -hmm. they kind of sent me in as a Trojan horse to do a training on the use of mobile technology and international development. And so at the beginning of that training, everyone was very tense. You know, it was very confrontational. I think people were like, you know, "What, what is the point of this? And by the end of it, they were like, cheering my name. I was invited to meet with the minister at the end of the engagement. And it was because the education that I had from my first master's program and meeting people where they are and kind of thinking strategically, like, how can you engage with these issues in a way that's going to empower them? Yeah. That kind of opened up opportunities for me in a way that it hadn't for my colleagues. And after that, my colleagues called me and they said, what the hell did you do? Because now they're talking to us. They're listening to us. What did you do to get them to open up? And it was, you know, the combination of all of that. So for me, it was always pleasurable to engage in scenarios where, number one, you don't see many black faces. Like, of course, when you're in Africa, you do. You don't Mm -hmm. see many female faces either, Mm -hmm. So being, working at the very high levels of government to do things that would impact entire nations, that for me was a great responsibility that I took very seriously and made the most of it to, to benefit the people of that country that mm-hmm. I was sent to.
0: Wow. Wow. Kudos to you. Um, <laughs> so so let me ask, particularly since you mentioned Nigeria. So recently they took a step to ban Twitter. Yes. And, you know, across Africa, I think Ethiopia is probably the other place where the government has, you know, shut down the internet at times. I'm not sure if it's shut down now, but they have at times in the last year. So what are your, what can the people do? Like how, because this is, I mean, this is now kind of like a, it's like water, you know yeah. the idea to have m- mobile technology, you know Wi-Fi, just internet access is is almost a necessity for survival for a lot yeah. of people. So how how can the people respond? And what are your thoughts on just the whole cons the, the 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 path towards the government shutting down Twitter and the path back from something like that?
1: Sure. So like, what can everyday citizens do when they're in these yes. circumstances? Mm-hmm. So. I mean, we address this a lot at 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 my former employer, and we also kind of look at it at our at my current employer. But mm-hmm. from my own personal experience, what I've seen, what I've read about is that the more you try to suppress, mm-hmm. it's going to become a never-ending game of whack-a-mole because yeah. you may cut off Twitter someone else can create a new social media platform that people similarly flock to and say and do things that you as a government will not like. And one kind of common shared tool that has been noticeably absent across most governments, you know, whether that's in in, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or North America is the fact that no one is really, teaching about what it means to be a digital citizen, Mm -hmm. how you should behave online, what Mm -hmm. is a social contract for being online in these spaces, what you should and should not do, and why this kind of stuff matters. Like, no one is looking at it from that perspective. I think, you know, in parallel to the telecommunications changes that were happening the past two decades, increasingly we have seen people turn away from having a well-rounded education that connects people to the world around them and solely focusing on high stakes, like, oh, you got to know your math. You got to know your science. You got to know this. You got to know that. And Mm -hmm. everything else is kind of left to parents if if people have them or left to households, if people have stable ones. And that's simply not good enough. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, many of the governments have been taking, you know, what I would consider to be a ham-fisted approach that is honestly not sustainable because the more you try to suppress the power of the people through these Mm -hmm. platforms, the Mm -hmm. more that it makes them want to rebel. I mean, I was just reading about how, you know, activists in Nigeria are already thinking about like, okay, what are some other ways we can be engaged online? Like, this is not going to stop what the government was trying to prevent. And so I think- you know, the dialogue that needs to be held is really, you know, getting to, to the heart of what governments fear. And I think, you know, probably a lot of people would say that a government that fears its people is a healthy government, right? Because you never rest on your laurels.
0: But yeah. I think,
1: you know, what activists, the cit- the citizenry can do is to, to ask for and push for more resources that will help, you know, make, kind of change Because returning to what I said about us being infants using these adult tools, Mm -hmm. you know, technology has leapfrogged ahead of what we are able to comprehend in the sense of how we can appropriate it. I think when everything came out about Facebook and what they have been doing since 2014 in terms of data selling, targeting, misinformation, disinformation, I would have never believed it until you saw the scale of just what they did but not Mm -hmm. having that literacy and that awareness that something like that was possible, you know, made Mm -hmm. me a prime target for what bad actors were trying to achieve. So knowledge is power and that is how we need to, to address this in the first instance. We can't, you know, address something that we don't even know is a problem. And the fact that most curricula make no space anymore for any kind of you know, civics education, social yeah. contract, any yeah. of that, that's a yeah. huge problem the world over.
0: It, exactly. I I would echo that most definitely. Like being in education in, in Ghana and in Africa, I see that it's a very not well-rounded, as you said. Yeah. Very, I don't even know if it's tools because, you know, math and English and science without context of the real world is pointless, actually.
1: Definitely.
0: <laughs> So, so what does it mean to be a digital citizen? What what would you describe as what that process is and, and who who is who who leads that?
1: Sure. What I, I think it means to be a digital citizen, there are incredible people working in this space that I that I'm aware of. So one woman I'd like to um to, to pay respect to, homage to is um <clears throat> a British Ghanaian. Activist called Shay Akiwolo.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and she's based in the UK. Okay. And she coined the term digital self care. Mm. Uh, and a lot of her work sprung forth from a speech that she gave in the, the European Parliament that generated a lot of very racialized, mis- misogynist abuse directed her way. And she her organization called Glitch. Uh, came about because she's like, there is a, a glitch in the system. Like, something is fundamentally wrong when, you know, we would never dream of saying these kind of things face to face, but online we will say anything. And mm-hmm. so, digital citizenship to me, like, you know, in the United States pre Trump, let's say, uh, right. it was not okay to be openly racist face to face to someone, right? Right. That's changed slightly now. But generally, the general public thinks it's abhorrent. Even if they are that way in private, no one wants to be that in public. And it's the same thing. You know, online, publicly, people are awful. Like people will Mm -hmm. say it, not only say it with their chest, but have themselves so easily traceable that you know who it is who has said these things. And so I think the idea that, you know, we need to have this social contract, not just for the people that we encounter face-to-face in our daily lives, but also those people that we encounter in the digital sphere is one of the things that needs to happen. And, and there's so many people like Shade that are doing incredible work in the space to, to raise awareness, to say, hey, we need to talk about this. And not only do we need to talk about it, we need to operationalize it in a way that is going to have positive impact. So they do a lot of things around workshops and um, things like that, how to stay safe online. There's a lot of engagement that is done um, with the various social, various social media platforms to get them to put in safeguards that, Hey, it may affect their metrics or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's also going to keep people safe online. We don't have to watch right. another live stream suicide. We don't have to watch another, you know, incident of racial abuse against notable people just because they don't make the the, the, the game winning score. You know, mm-hmm. we, we don't mm-hmm. have to live with that. That doesn't have to be our reality. But mm-hmm. until we kind of advocate for that change and recognize that while we have done a lot, and have made a lot of progress, even in our face-to-face interactions. We still have a bit of a ways to go, and I think the disconnect that people see between the online sphere and the the the, the face-to-face physical sphere um, needs to be disrupted because increasingly our technologies that we have in our lives are metaphorical, and in sometimes in some cases, literal extensions of ourselves. And so what Mm. does that mean for how we interact with each other? No one has really sat down and kind of wrote a treaty on what this means or what it could look like in practice. And I think, you know, devoting more time and resources to that and and from a people perspective. So not asking the tech platforms to come up with something like that. It has to come from the people, like, you know, what people will want to know or see happen. Uh, yeah. That's what I think we need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like part of that starts with really going back to what it, what education is, what are the basics of education? Because we, you know, in the West, we have the luxury of devices and having these, these tools in the classrooms. But as you're saying, I don't believe that there in ICT education that I've seen abroad. It's just about the device. It's yes. not really about what it means, and, and as you said, the, the metaphorical extension of who you are and how you present and how you tell your story to the world. So, hmm, something to definitely think about. Like education policy has a, a long ways to go. I, yes. I feel, yeah, there's some some real <laughs> rethinking that's that's necessary. So, speaking about citizenship, let me ask you my global speak question. So, mm-hmm. we want to hear what you hear. I asked my guest, to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak? Ooh,
1: gosh, I would say uh, intersectionality, oh, <laughs> which, which okay. I know is a, a buzzword. Um, uh-huh. But I think for me, every time I engage with literature around that or with people who understand what that means, for me, it, it is the starting point for empathy. Mm. Developing empathy for other people, being able to see, even if you don't agree, being able to see things from someone else's perspective, mm-hmm. being able to listen without the need to like, okay, I'm listening just so I can respond, but listening for listening's sake. Right. Uh, I think that, yeah, that is the the word for me that, has so much meaning, Um, and I value it because it it, it has helped me to see the world in a way that I think is much more nuanced Mm -hmm. and, yeah, just, yeah, kind of Mm -hmm. getting also to the heart of the empowerment, let's say. Sure,
0: sure, sure, sure. So you said your craft is empowerment. So tell us more about your current role and how empowerment is a part of your everyday work.
1: Sure. So in my current role, I am the global head of, of training and e-learning for the Internet Society. And so our mission is to make sure that the Internet of Opportunity benefits everyone. And so for me, being a woman of color in this role and hearing that that is the tagline, I know that everyone means from the village to the coast, all of that. So we work to offer courses to people all over the world. Currently, we offer them in three languages. And the idea is to help them acquire skills in the internet industry that helps them to work as better advocates for the internet that helps them to understand the technical operations of the internet so that they can kind of work directly to help make things better. They help people acquire skills in the business aspects of the internet industry, again, with the same aim. And one of the things that I love about what I do is that we are absolutely wanting everyone of every, you know, race, ethnicity, country, creed, whatever, to come learn with us. Because I think from where I sit, technology has become something where you're probably aware, Florence, like with computer science, all of that, it was pretty female dominated up until a stage where they kind of shift, shifted gears and made it more male focused. Mm -hmm. And so the way that, this field has been shaped has been to be so exclusive and I can't help but think, my God, what kind of innovations are we missing out on? Because right. we don't have yeah. diverse representation in mm-hmm. this sector. What mm-hmm. kind of because, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And my my father never graduated high school but he was the smartest person, the most creative, the most, you know, engineering things to be like, we're going to get some more out of this and this (laughs) is how we're going to do it. Right. Right. That Missing that ingenuity from the tech sector, how are we preventing ourselves from doing even more good
0: to Mm -hmm. do
1: even better because we don't have that representation. So that's kind of how I see my role, not just to, you know, offer the courses and make sure people like them, mm-hmm. but to make sure we're reaching as many different people as possible so that we can have more representation here so that we can, you know, empower people everywhere to to do a lot of the stuff that I have been doing in my career, like with sure. how big the population is, this is not something that we do alone. We need everyone participating. Right,
0: right. Right. So I'm assuming you work with a lot of partners across the globe to implement your, your projects and programs.
1: Oh, yeah. We work with governments. We work with civil society. We work with the private sector. We literally work with everyone because that is our, our mandate. And, and the organization it, itself was founded by the people who, who made the Internet. Um, Mm -hmm. So, as you can imagine, we have been very concerned about, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening nowadays by governments because it's like, okay that's not, you know, that's not what the Internet was meant to do. You know, we don't mean to like, you know, in Iran and Russia, they're building their own uh, sorry, Iran and um, China. They're building their own intranets that are essentially going to cut their populations off from the World Wide Web. Yeah, and it's like okay, no, that's not the point. The point is not that. So, so this is what we're trying to raise awareness of to to create more internet champions. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, this kind of dovetails into my mindset hack question. So, tell us what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? One that you can imagine or one that you know of.
1: Um. Yeah, I, that question for me was very. Interesting when I read it and the first thing that came to mind. So like, usually your first instinct is always the best one. Yeah. um, Coaching, which Mm. may sound Mm. odd to you being that I'm in the field that I'm in, but I had never, you know, I've seen therapists, I've done professional development, learning from other people, but I had never personally worked with a coach until this year. Mm. And that has been a hack for my professional life that I did not know that I needed Mm -hmm. getting support on how to navigate very challenging issues at work even outside of work learning how you can be even more effective in your role all of these things that you know not that I thought I knew everything but I always kind of felt like my approaches were you know yielding the results that that I desired. So, if it's not broke, why fix it? But right. having that experience this year completely changed my life and so I am a huge advocate now of coaches, these kind okay. of impartial people. They're not there to give you therapy, but they are help, there to help you think strategically in a way that maybe you would not have done in their in their absence. So that has been a huge hack for me this year and yeah.
0: That's a great one, actually, because I have a few friends that are coaches and just listening to them, I'm I'm due for some myself. So I like that, you know, this is like encouragement, like, oh yeah, I've been putting that on the shelf, but it's something that I really, really want to engage in because just as you said, you don't have, you might think you have it all under control and you probably have it pretty much well handled, but having someone who is, and that's what a coach is, someone to help you be better at what you do. That's yes. exactly what their their role yes. is. Yes.
1: <laughs> Which, when you put it that way, Florence, it sounds so obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I've never interpreted it to be that way until now.
0: So yeah. Yes. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Good. So if you have a recommendation for a coach, we'll put that in the show notes as well, um, or a resource that you use for it. We'll put that in the show notes so everyone can can have a look at that. Wow. Rhonda, this has been really a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time out to talk with us, to talk about what you're doing. It's You are our first Peace Corps volunteer. Ah. So yeah. <laughs> So wow. and it's <laughs>
1: <That's>
0: an <honor. laughs> yeah, and so it's interesting that you had one of those Peace Corps experiences. That is kind of what the Peace Corps. I don't. It's just that that you were caught in a coup. You know, that's I guess one of the Peace Corps nightmares. I guess you know yeah. for people who you know what percentage of Peace Corps volunteers are in crisis when they do you know what percentage of Peace Corps volunteers. End up making their Gosh, assignments
1: nowadays. Too. No, I if you had asked me then, I probably would have known, but now right. I don't know the exact statistic. But yeah, it was you know, one of those one of once in a lifetime things yeah. that yeah, I'll never forget it. And yeah, it stays with me today. It was right.
0: I can imagine <laughs> just, just thinking about travel, you know, and now, you know, now we're thinking COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But there are so many different things that can happen when traveling <laughs> it's just you you just and it's just the the nature of the world and the globe
1: yes 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 yeah. for sure and I I mean I have to express my thanks to you as well for inviting me on I think the podcast and this idea are fantastic so thank you, thank for, you. for for doing this this work thank for you, the culture. Thank <laughs> Thank you. So before we let you go,
0: let's get into a little bit of who Rhonda is outside of all the work. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us, are you a reader or a watcher or a listener?
1: I used to be a reader, uh, but I would say now that I'm more of a watcher because a lot of the stuff that I do read is usually because I've watched something online or, you know, through an article that I've read. So I still love to read, but Now I'm kind of having that initial contact through watching something.
0: What are some of the more interesting watches that you've had lately?
1: You know what? I haven't actually had much time, but in the past few months, the things that I have watched, and this will show you how diverse, um, well, you know, Flight 93 for the September 11th commemoration. Okay. I finally finished that because it's a lot to take in. Yeah. Um, I also watched the Love is Blind reunion because like everyone <laughs> during the pandemic, I was like, whoa, you know, I just need to switch off completely. And so right. <laughs> being the, the, that follow up was was great. Um, and then also, I guess I would say my my daughter, uh, there's this cartoon called La Granja de Zenón. And it has a lot of very upbeat kind of songs in the Spanish language. And oh. the other day I saw Ashton Kutcher and, and Mila Kunis talk about how they also watch this with their children. So I kind of felt oh. like, oh, interesting. We have something in common that does not involve the lack of showers. <laughs> so so yeah it's been you know all over the place okay those
0: are those are great tips though and the the kids show let say it again
1: uh la granja de xenon which basically means the xenon's farm And it's an Argentinian cartoon and it's really popular here in Spain. I'm actually putting it in the, the chat as well.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. So any last words for our listeners?
1: Um, no, I, I think, you know, now's the time maybe that we're not encouraging people to travel as much. Um, but I would say that when it is safe to do so, I can't wait to, to maybe see some of you all in person. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a great last parting words because, yeah, we we want to see people and we want to get back to that. So eventually we'll get there again. Yeah. Rhonda, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. So listeners, this has been another episode of Global Citizens. You can catch us with a new episode each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please do share, like, give us a review. It helps people find the podcast. And Do check out the show notes because we have some great, you know, this has been a wealth of information. So check out the show notes. We'll have great information for you there. And until next time, bye for now.